Welcome to the podcast of Vineyard Church Cardiff. We are a multi-site church longing for God's kingdom to come in order to restore the city and renew the nation of Wales. During the coronavirus outbreak, we are not meeting on a Sunday, but you can stay connected with us on YouTube, Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Vineyard Church Cardiff. Each Sunday, we will be streaming a full-length service and providing resources for the kids. And across the week, we're putting up loads of content. You can find out more on our social media or at cardiffvineyard.org forward slash online church. Here's this week's talk from our senior pastor, James Rankin. Happy Easter! Yes! He is risen! And I can hear all of you shouting back at me, He is risen indeed! So let's just try that again. He is risen. I can hear you going crazy. Today, wherever you are scattered across our city and beyond, we celebrate and we remember Jesus's defeating death, overcoming sin and resurrecting us. It's interesting, this this week I've had this line going round and round. The resurrecting king is resurrecting me. And it's this picture of, as Jesus came out of the grave and rose again, you know, he'd have been wrapped up in, in um, cloths. He'd have come up from the grave. Well, that's a picture of what's also happening to us as well, that we're being resurrected, that there's life going into our souls as well. So I want you to take a moment just to, to think about the disciples. The, the moment before they find out what's happened to Jesus. So they would have been crushed and, and devastated and defeated and alone pretty depressed probably, thinking, oh, our whole lives have changed. And they they go from this place to suddenly having their leader walking amongst them. Can you imagine the shock and the surprise, these two different extremes, the the emotions that they would have gone through in probably a four-day period from having this meal together, him washing their feet and then thinking, well, that's pretty profound and amazing, all the way through to him being arrested and crucified and then being laid down in the tomb and then suddenly beginning to see, being able to see him again. Well, they've had an intense four days. Now, the truth is that many of us find ourselves in, in kind of strange situations in our, in our lives as well. This, this last month has caught all of us by surprise. It's not just been some of us, it's all of us. All of our plans have shifted. I was supposed to be going away with my family for my dad's birthday. I was like, well, that's not going to be happening. But our, our jobs, our living situations, our finances, our community, our, our freedoms even. Just thinking of going to the end of the road to go and grab a coffee or a, or a drink. Well, we're not able to do that in the same way. So this Easter really isn't, isn't what we expected. I expected to, to be worshipping together, to be in church, probably to having the kids come in later into the service. But that, that's not what it's going to be. But however, as followers of Jesus, our situations and our externals do not define us. They affect us. Absolutely, we're affected. We're allowed to feel emotional. We're allowed to feel all of those things. But they don't define us. And it can be really helpful to take a step back and by reflecting on the cross and, and the resurrection. It's almost like this, this moment in history, it takes us out into a, a broader sweep of something that's been going on. On Easter Sunday, we celebrate a moment in history when Jesus rose victorious. The words of an old hymn uh, help beautifully capture this. Up from the grave he arose 
with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. Beautiful words and I can't wait to sing them. It's not that we sing that every week, but I can't wait to sing together. Now, I don't know how you feel about surprises in life. Are you the kind of person that loves a surprise party? Because I think we could pretty much put our, our community into two camps with that one. So there are some of you that you walk in and everyone's like, surprise! And you're like, finally, somebody recognised me, I'm here. Start strutting your stuff, you're like, yeah, hi, hi, hi. Absolutely love it. For others, the rest of you, you're like, what a nightmare. Why didn't you tell me? I want to know what the plan is. I can't believe that you've just done this to me. Just want to go, when can I get out of here? When can I leave? What a nightmare. Jen, my wife has realised that I have an epic overreaction to being surprised. So about 12 or 13 years ago, I was just lining up to get my ticket in a cinema, just in the, in the foyer. And Jen hadn't been with me and she came and joined me. And just as she came up to me, she went, boo, like this. And I literally jumped onto the back of the guy in front, who I didn't know, and whimpered at the same, boo! Like a, like a little horse. And the guy turned around and he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I, d I don't really know what I'm doing. And how do you explain that? I mean, really awkward. And every time I think back to it, I feel deeply awkward. I mean, I've got a terrible memory and I can still remember it that far, far off. But so sometimes Jen will just hide around the house and every now and then just jump at me, boom, because she gets this little whimper and she just thinks it's so funny. And I'm just not sure it's that funny, but... Before you feel sorry for me, don't worry, I do get my own back. So su surprises, uh, Rach and Dave are youth pastors. Um, they were in their front room with their little boy Judah and probably having afternoon tea knowing those guys, you know, quite, quite classy. Anyway, Rach is sitting on the sofa next to the window and suddenly a car comes straight through their front wall and knocks Rach onto the floor. Now all of those three are absolutely fine. But can you imagine you're just sitting there and suddenly this car is in in your front room that's pretty major isn't it but all the time throughout life we're surprised easter is all about people being surprised the last thing probably that any of them expected was to see the living breathing jesus if you think back he'd been whipped he'd been beaten he'd been on the cross wrapped in dozens of cloths with spices, buried, huge rock put across the tomb. The last thing that any of them expected was to meet Jesus. So they'd gone to the tomb and then he's there, utterly healed, transformed and powerfully alive, all of those things. So I've called this Easter message, Surprised by the Risen Jesus. And we're gonna be looking at John 20. We've been doing a series in John and continuing it today. John 20 verses 1 to 10 to start with. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Feels like that's an important moment. The race that John won. And he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. And he 
saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, and the cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Have you ever been to watch a film where there is just this twist at the end. I can still remember the first time that I watched The Usual Suspects, a film, it's an old film now, but the twist at the end, you're like, whoa, I feel completely rocked by this. Um, but one of the things that you'll quickly discover as you read the Gospel accounts of Easter is that the possibility that Jesus would be raised from the dead just came as this stunning surprise to everybody. And it really shouldn't have, because if you look at the scriptures, Jesus has been predicting his death time and time again. It's like, yes, I'm going to die and then I'm going to raise again in three, three days. But the disciples just hadn't got this at all. They hadn't understood it or believed it. So after all, on, on that Easter Sunday morning, where were they? They weren't waiting outside the tomb. It's like, is he going to come out? When's he going to come out? They weren't waiting for him with their party poppers to emerge. Instead, they would have been probably waiting under a table somewhere back in Jerusalem, terrified that the authorities are going to break in and try and arrest them and try and crush this final bit of this movement that they've had. So when Mary told the other disciples, it, it was a complete surprise to them. They'd assumed... They would have been sure they'd assumed it was all over, that any hopes that this movement had have been crushed, that they were probably beginning to think, oh, what are we going to do next? Do I go back to Galilee? Do I start being a fisherman again? And so Jesus comes into their midst and suddenly they move from defeat to courage. Courage is being put in. The world had changed in this moment. Satan no longer had dominion. Jesus had emerged victorious. And so this moment of the resurrection, resurrection stands right at the heart of the Christian faith. Sam Storms, who's a theologian, puts it so beautifully, I couldn't put it any better, and that's why I wanted to read it, because I feel exactly the same. He says this, I can honestly say that I've staked my life on an empty tomb. Everything I am, everything I own, everything I've done or hope to do hangs suspended on whether or not Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. The decision I made decades ago to put my trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour is only as good as the tomb is empty. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, my life is a sham. I've invested everything in it, staked everything on, entrusted everything to the historical fact of the empty tomb of Jesus. If his body and bones are still buried somewhere in Palestine or have long since disintegrated under the force of time and the laws of physics, nothing has meaning for me, nor do I have meaning for anything or anyone else. So they're pretty strong words, aren't they? But I couldn't agree more. I feel exactly the same. My whole life is based around this event, around this moment in history. This is personal. To me, it changes everything. I feel deeply emotional when I think about it. Jesus willingly taking the sin of the world on his shoulders, his outstretched arms. And when he died, he utters these words, it is finished. I have emptied my cup. I have given everything i have discharged my duty of love i've given my soul my life in order that humanity might be free in order that you could be free free from death to live eternally with him free from sin that robs us of life so when we talk about the empty tomb and the risen jesus it's in this context victory he has overcome 
So the story moves from, from the surprise of the empty tomb to meeting the risen Jesus. In verse 11, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realise that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. So Mary has this incredible encounter with Jesus. And I think that what we see in this encounter is divine grace, surprised by grace. So who is Mary Magdalene? Well, if we look into Luke 8, we can see a couple of things about Mary Magdalene. Firstly, that she was a part of Jesus's ministry team. And then secondly, that she had previously had seven demons driven out of her by Jesus. So I think that would lead us to realise that there's a great deal of brokenness in her, in her past as well. There's a, there's a very long tradition in the early church that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute in Magdala, and, and that would also have made sense. All we know for sure is Mary Magdalene came from an incredibly broken background. Her life was a wreck and she was a broken person. And so Jesus, piece by piece, had been helping her to put her life back together. Now, we know that she goes on Easter Sunday morning to, uh, Easter Sunday morning to the tomb. She sees the grave is open, she sees the tomb empty and she runs back to go and get Peter and John and Peter and John runs, they find out that it's empty and she comes behind and they look in and see that the grave clothes are still there and we're told in verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes but Mary stood outside. And Mary probably just standing there going, I don't know what to do with this. But Mary is the first one who hears Jesus's voice. She looks at him, she thinks he's the gardener and she challenges him and doesn't understand who he is, but he breaks through and, and when he says her name, he says, Mary. When she hears that voice, she knows. And the simple fact is of all the people in the world, of all the people that Jesus could have appeared to, he called her. She was the first one to hear, she was the first one to see. For one moment, she was the whole church because she was the only evangelist, the only missionary, the only person who knew the truth. And she runs with a message. So, so why did Jesus choose her? Why is she the first one? And I'd love to suggest a couple of reasons. The first one is, do you think this is an accident? Because I don't. He chose a woman, not a man. He chose a reformed prostitute, not a pillar of the community. And if you ask the question, why did she hear him? The answer of the second lesson is grace. Mary was on the outside of every single category that the world would have had at that time about what success would have looked like. She was a woman, not a man in a patriarchal society. She was poor, not middle class. She was a moral, not moral. She was on the outside of everything. And this is the gospel. The gospel is that God's salvation 
is never based on merit. It doesn't come on the basis of background, it doesn't come on the basis of race or gender or class. The gospel is not that the good are in and the bad are out. The gospel is that the humble are in and the proud are out. The gospel is not that God gives you a perfect record. It's not that he looks at you and he's like, well, you're perfect, you've done a great job, you're in. Instead, the gospel is that he gives you a perfect record. The gospel is that it's not your past which is a determining factor in your relationship with the Father, but it's Christ's past. It's his record that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus, his perfect, spotless past, his perfect record. And this is what Jesus is getting across. In choosing Mary, Jesus is saying, do you know what? Come to me, everybody, all you who are heavy and weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest that God uses the available, not the qualified. He looks at the heart, not the external, and he sends her with a message and he makes her the evangelist. And this is something that you see throughout the Bible time and time again. Think of David and Goliath. He uses this little boy to defeat this great giant. Think of Gideon. When um, Gideon gathers together the army and then God's like, oh, you don't need that many people. And he begins to whittle it down bit by bit to 300. And it's the 300 who've kind of leant over and lapped with their tongues rather the water with their tongues rather than just using their hands. What about the little slave girl who saves Naaman? the great prime minister of Syria, over and over again. Then you get to Jesus himself. He's born to poor people, not wealthy people, in a stable. It's shepherds who come, the lowly of society. Throughout his ministry, the disciples are all saying, Lord, when are you going to network? When are you going to meet with the important people? We've noticed you've been hanging around with the children and with the prostitutes and with the tax collector. You know, you're hanging around with people. You need to get there. You need to get to these people. And Jesus is like, I don't care about that. I've never cared about that. I have always cared about the heart. Always. Why is Mary there? Why is everybody gone? Maybe because she loved him more than anyone else. That's why she's still there. Everybody else is gone. It's the reason she came. It's the reason she hasn't left. She knew that she was utterly broken. She knew how big her debt was. She knew it. And Jesus has said, you can be a child of God. And this is the reason why God's grace is so overwhelming. It's because it's based on him, not on us. It's people who know that they've not got it all together. It's people who know the depth of their mess, who love like this. Those who have been forgiven much love deeply. Isn't that true in life? Those who don't think they've got much to be forgiven, well, they don't love deeply. They don't give deeply. They're not generous. But when we come before the Lord and we're like, you have given it all. I've got nothing to give you. I'm so grateful. That's a powerful moment. So let me apply this to us. God uses the Marys in his kingdom. He uses the fishermen. He uses the shepherds. He uses the tax collectors, the prostitutes. Can you see the pattern? God uses the low things of this world to advance his kingdom. Why? Because they know how much they need him. There's just a sheer thankfulness and a gratefulness and there's no pride. Grace is a free gift to whoever would ask. Surprised by grace and then finally surprised that he calls us by name. Verse 15 it says, he asked a woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, so if you carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. 
Now, when he called her woman, she didn't recognise him. Why, why would that be? Woman, it's a kind of interesting language. It's, it's, it's a bit impersonal. It's a bit of a stark contrast, isn't it? And now Jesus wasn't a chauvinist. In fact, he was absolutely the opposite. In all the years that they spent time together and all the hundreds of times that Jesus would have talked to Mary, he must never have talked to her like that. She didn't recognise the voice. He must never have said woman. He never treated her as a member of a different class or a lower class. He couldn't have. But what we do notice is that the language changes from impersonal to personal. When he calls her to himself, he uses her name. He's calling her by naming her Mary. And I think that's his way of saying, if you want to know who you are, know me. I know who you are. I made you. You're absolutely unique. And the way that you're going to find yourself and the way you're going to find your mission in life is not by trying to find yourself, but by finding me. If you find me, you'll find yourself. When you grab me, when you get me, I'll tell you my name. But this isn't just for Mary. It's for each one of us. God names us. Naming is such a huge part of our identity. Words spoken over our lives form us. Names. Some of you can just think back to some of the nicknames that you've had. I'm not going to share them because I don't want any of you to know them and I haven't got over some of them. Um, But our name matters. Throughout the Bible, names have significance. They say something about us. They give us identity. Nowadays, sometimes we just name people because we like the word, the sound of the word. But actually, they had deep meaning in the time. And I I just want to share a story from a book by a Catholic priest called Tattoos on the Heart. And in the book, this priest talks about working at a juvenile detention centre. And here's what he says. He says, I'm seated on a bench outside in a baseball field and one by one the guys come over to talk briefly and this day there's quite a lineup. The next kid approaching I can tell is all swagger and pose and his head bobs side to side to make sure all eyes are riveted and he sits down. We shake hands. But he seems unable to take away the scowl etched across his face. What's your name? I ask him. Sniper, he sneers. Okay, look, I, I've been down this block before and I have your feeling your mum didn't give you that name when you were born. So, so what's your name? Gonzalez, he relents a little. Okay now, son, I know the staff here will call you by your last name, but tell me, what what does your mum call you? Cabron, there's even the slightest flicker of innocence in his answer. Okay, well, what was written on your birth certificate? The kid begins to soften and I can tell it's happening, but there's an an embarrassment and and a newfound vulnerability. Napoleon, he manages to squeak out, pronouncing it in Spanish. Wow, I say, that's a, that's a fine, noble, historic name. But I'm almost positive that when your girlfriend calls you, she doesn't use the whole name. What's your nickname? What, what, what does your mum call you? And then I watch him go to some far distant place, a location he hasn't visited for some time, and, and his voice and body language and whole being are beginning to take on a new shape right before my eyes. Sometimes his, his voice is so quiet, I lean out. Sometimes when my mum's not mad at me, she calls me. Napito. I watched this kid move, transform from Sniper to Gonzalez to Cabron to Napoleon to Napito. We all just want to be called by the name our mum uses when she's not hacked off at us. The truth is many of us are living under names that the world has given us. Titles, nicknames, condemnation. We're living under those things. You are not good enough. You are not enough. But the risen Jesus knows your name. He knows every hair on your head. He knows everything about you. There is no secrets that you have that he doesn't know. He knows. 
And sometimes all we have to do is open up our hearts before him and just say, I know that you see me. I don't want to hide from you anymore. He says, come to me and let me name you. Let me speak words of life over you. You are my child. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are precious. You are loved. All of these titles Jesus would put, you are a co-heir with me. I went to the cross for you. Let me in. And right now I believe that he's speaking your name and he's inviting you into a relationship with him. I just want to pray in finishing. Lord, I love it that you know our name, that you know everything about us, that you see us as we truly are. And Lord, right now we just come before you on Easter Sunday, a celebratory day, and we just say, forgive us, watch over us. Let your names be over us. Lord, we're a child of God and we love you and we celebrate you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us. Remember, you can tune into our YouTube channel on Sundays from 10.30 for our online church or connect with us through Facebook and Instagram to hear from us throughout the week. We would love to help you find out more about Jesus or grow in your faith. So if you have any questions, get in touch on social media or email info at cardiffvineyard.org. If you're local to Cardiff, we would love for you to get involved in a small group, which is just a small group of people meeting throughout the week across the city. Of course, meeting online at the moment. They are the heartbeat of this church and now more than ever at this time of social distancing, they are so important for you to stay connected to church and grow in your faith. Head to our website cardiffvineyard.org and hit the small groups tab at the top of the page to find out more. If you're listening from further afield, thanks so much for tuning in. We're really glad you're here. But we would also love to help you get connected with a local church where you are. So email us at info at cardiffvineyard.org and we would love to help. Thanks again for tuning in this week. Have a great week and we'll see you next time.